0: The text this evening is taken from the first chapter, the first verse of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah chapter one and verse one. Hear once again the word of our God, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham. Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Our text is just that phrase that we find there in the midst of that verse, that which Isaiah saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah. This evening, uh, we commence a series that by the end of it, we all may be five and a half years older than we currently are. Uh, this evening we, we begin the prophecy of Isaiah, and as we take up this text this evening, uh, of course my purpose is to introduce the text, but, but I want to do so in such a way that that is truly not a lecture. Uh, I want us to see how just even in this first verse, you and I are given really a footing to understand spiritually the text that's before us. Uh, this first verse, of course, gives us a timestamp. stamp. For the prophecy. And and I suppose because it's so conventional in the Old Testament, these are words that we can quickly read over. But friend, it is something more than a timestamp. When we read that God's prophets are sent to a particular time, we're to remember, of course, that the prophet is sent to a particular period and condition of the church. And in this timestamp, you and I are supposed to go back to the rest of Scripture and we're supposed to understand that when he says that, that, that he sent his prophet Isaiah to the church in the days of Uzziah, that we understand something of the condition of the church to whom he was sent. And friend, as you look at this text, that's certainly something we have to keep before us. Here we are told that the prophet goes to the church in a particular state. And our purpose this evening is to understand more of her condition at this time. But furthermore, not only is this a timestamp that tells us something about the condition of the church, but as we go back through the rest of scripture and we, we try to understand the time in which Isaiah ministered by, by looking at the lives of the kings in view here, we need to recognize that the lives of those kings are well, they're more than perhaps we, we at first expect. You see, in many ways, friend, the scriptures teach us that that in the lives of these kings, you have refracted the spiritual condition of their people. Uh, To put it very succinctly, as the king, so the people. More often than not, friends, we read throughout the scriptures, and, and genuinely when we leave the scriptures and look at history, only rarely do we find a king exceeding the spiritual condition of the generality of his people or vice versa. And as we will see in our text this evening, when Isaiah tells us that that he was a minister in the time of Uzziah, and we go back and we read the life of Uzziah, we recognize that what we see in the king, well, Isaiah saw in the generality of the church. Truly, the church was refracted in the life of her king. And you see this in so many ways. You see this in Psalm 2 powerfully, don't you? You see that that the nations, the people, are raging against the Lord, but but who leads them in their rebellion? They're kings. When Ezra goes before God and and he seeks to to reform the church in his generation, he's told that, that right through the social strata, all have been contaminated with defection, from the people to the priests to the princes. And indeed, says the princes themselves, we've been leaders in it. And again, when you look at Daniel 9, the same theme comes out. That is, as prince, so the people. Daniel prays, neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Daniel says he sees in the kings what he sees in the people. And friend, we'll see that briefly this evening. That what we see in Uzziah, really the first five chapters of this prophecy, Isaiah sees in the generality of the church. And so what do we see? As we hold together what we read from Second Chronicles, with what we have in our text this evening, and also what we have given to us in Second Kings. Our theme this evening can be drawn into a simple sentence. Abused mercies and formal godliness invite divine judgment. Abused mercies and formal godliness invite divine judgment. I want us just to demonstrate that this evening under three headings. I want us to see this first of all from the record that we get from from 2 Kings 15. We're looking here particularly at the reign of Uzziah. And we're told in 2 Kings that he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done, save that the high places were not removed. The people sacrificed and burnt incense still on the high places. Now, it would be a digression for our purposes this evening to to descend into much discussion about what these high places were. But what you and I need to remember is that really after Rehoboam, chiefly after Rehoboam, there was something of a, of a revival of a certain practice that you and I find in the book of Genesis with the patriarchs, where men would, would gather as heads of their family, they would erect altars to Jehovah, and they would worship Jehovah on them. The problem, of course, with all of that is is that that was prior to the Mosaic reformation of the church. Whenever Moses, the the great lawgiver, comes, he comes as God's servant to reform the church. And friend, you notice that one of the reforms that God gives is that he centralizes his worship, first in the tabernacle and later with Solomon in the temple. But what has taken place generally is that, that people in these generations have gone back prior to the Mosaic Reformation, and they have sought to revive the patriarchal form of worship, which God had clearly proscribed. It was now forbidden. The worship of God was to be at Mount Zion at the temple. And what we're told in this text is that Uzziah, well, he kept all that was good with his father. And he also kept all of that which was evil. He was truly a status quo ruler. But the text, friend, you remember, it it strives to show both elements of Uzziah at once. I submit to you that it's doing so because it would highlight that Uzziah's piety was of a truly traditional kind. Traditional in the the uncritical, the ill-informed kind where he took the good and the bad of the past and preserved both. But that's not all that the text tells us. If you remember back to Second Chronicles 26, we're told also that Uzziah, he sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God. Now, who this Zechariah was is something of a large question. But what we do, what we do find stressed in this text Is the idea that so long as Zechariah lived, Uzziah maintained what faithfulness he began with? And the sense obviously was that as soon as Zechariah died, so also did that fidelity. And all of that underpins this idea that Uzziah was a king whose piety was traditional in the sense previously described and temporal. It would last only so long as he was in good company. It would proceed no further. It was a form, friend, in other words, of godliness. And as I said to you already, what's so striking about the first five chapters of Isaiah's prophecy that really is the, the content of the prophet's ministry in the days of Uzziah is that that's precisely the point that the prophet continues to bring before the people of God that their piety was like that of Uzziah. It was traditional, but corrupt. It was there in a sense, but very temporal, and without true power. And friend, what these things teach us very clearly, at the onset, simply from the superscription, as it were, to the prophecy, is the idea that fleeting temporal piety is insufficient. God must send His prophet to correct such as what we see in Uzziah and what we see in the church generally. This traditional kind of piety that preserves good and bad alike. This temporal piety that can only go so far. And as you think of the king, friend, you recognize that Uzziah ought to have gone so much further. You think, friend, of how the psalmist sees the Word of God. He says this in Psalm 119. He says, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I more than the ancients, because I keep thy precepts. Note what the psalmist says, his experience under the Word of God is that it enlightens him. He, in other words, he's not reliant, as it were, simply on the deeds of his fathers. The Word of God is the canon of his life. And so, friend, he can excel the faithfulness of previous generations because the word of God is his standard. But not so Uzziah. No, the, the high places must stand. They, they can't be touched. We, we, we've grown accustomed to these things. And and surely, if our fathers and our grandfathers did those kinds of things, well, it certainly must be okay. Friend, the Scriptures are very clear. That's not not the kind of godliness that, that is true, that is founded upon a genuine work of the Spirit of God. No, friend, that godliness, that which is true, sounds as what we have in the words of the Apostle Paul. I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What I want you to notice in that text, friend, is the idea that Paul strives and continually toward greater and greater. He, consen- he contents himself with no previous attainment. He presses forward. And that, friend, evidently is what you don't find in the church at this time. And so what you have here is a partiality of godliness, in godliness. A, a kind of half-reformation, if you like. And all of that comes down, friend, I suppose, to how you measure godliness. Our generation is told time and time again by the world to simply trust our judgment, to to follow our heart and that kind of thing. Friend, it's all nonsense. This must be the measure of our lives. And I'm not saying that simply of doctrine or of worship or the government of the church. But this, friend, is the canon for how a father is supposed to be. A mother, a husband, a wife, a child, a businessman, a student. This is our canon. And beloved, if this is not going to be our measuring rod, if this will not be that which we build our lives around, our piety will look like Uzziah's. If it's of a traditional kind, we'll preserve the good as well as the bad. Uncritically. Without reforming. If it's entirely off of its moorings, well, friend, you can look at the churches around us today, the ones who've embraced liberality, and you'll see, well, friend, you'll see where that leads you. No, this must be our standard. Anything less will simply not do. So what we see in Uzziah, first of all, is a partiality in godliness. But we also see something else, and that brings us to our second heading this evening. We take that from what we read in Second Chronicles 26. As long as he, that is Uzziah, sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. My friend, I know it's perhaps not our pastime, our favorite pastime, to go through and collate all of the historical um, pieces of data that we receive in the Old Testament. But allow me just to jog your memory where we are in the timeline. We are in Uzziah's reign after the division of the kingdom, north and south. You remember, after Solomon's death, Rehoboam accedes to his father's throne. The northern tribes, the ten, there they go and they supplicate with Rehoboam to, 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 to really urge for, for a more tender dealing with them than what Solomon had given them. They felt oppressed under Solomon. They sought alleviation under Rehoboam. Rehoboam through foolish counsel, well, he eventually drives them to their tents in which the ten northern tribes say, we have no part in the house of David, and they become a separate kingdom. Now, from that moment, friend, I want you to notice that there is a steady decline both in Israel, the ten northern tribes, and in Judah. The decline is political and it's economic. Politically, the ten northern tribes fall into chaos as one dynasty succeeds another dynasty, whereas, of course, the line of Judah is preserved in the line of David. But what you do notice in this descent is that while both fail to reach the apex that they had in Solomon's reign, Judah continues rather consistently to fall further and further below Israel. Politically, militarily, economically. In fact, by the time you get to Second Chronicles 25, Judah as a kingdom has fallen so much that she becomes something of a vassal to Israel. That's a staggering reversal, isn't it? The king of Judah, of the line of David, is now paying tribute to one of the, the reprobate dynasties of the northern kingdoms. That's immediately on the eve of Uzziah's accession to the throne. When Uzziah takes the throne, everything changes. No longer is Judah paying tribute to Israel, but in fact, Edom is now so awed by the power of Uzziah and his military might that they begin to be something of a vassal kingdom to Judah. Furthermore, through Uzziah, the southern kingdom of Judah, the southern aspect of Judah, that had been largely deteriorated, is now fortified once again. Through military invention, through the repair of Jerusalem, Judah now becomes stronger than it ever had been since the days of Solomon. We can go further. Economically, not only had Uzziah maintained all of, these, all of these wonderful things within Judah, but he actually expanded into the desert. He turned parts of the Negev into arable land, land that had never been farmed before, now through irrigation, was now farmable. And so Judah actually knew greater bounty than she had known previously. Furthermore, you notice that under Uzziah, military inventions proliferate. And now Uzziah's name becomes great. And Judah's, of course, with it. Furthermore, if you look to the north at the same time, the very self-same years, Israel is undergoing something very similar. Previously, her northern borders had been largely dilapidated. But under Jeroboam II, they're fortified. And now, as you hold both Judah and Israel's together, the two lands have now reconquered the lands that they had lost since the days of Solomon. Likewise, in, in Israel, under Jeroboam II, the economy becomes one that is booming. Part of that is because there's civil war in Egypt at the time, the other part is because Assyria in the north is preoccupied with putting down coup attempts by a small kingdom named Babylon. The point of all of this is that wealth was flowing into both and now, for the first time, these two kingdoms approximated a wealth like they once enjoyed under Solomon. Those are the days of Uzziah, days of incredible wealth. In fact, the archaeological record is quite straightforward. There was once a thought that when Amos was describing the wealth, a contemporary of Isaiah, of the northern kingdom, that he was perhaps using hyperbole. We found that he hasn't. Whole beds and whole rooms of ivory were constructed in these places. Such was its wealth. And so when we read, as we do in our text, that as long as Uzziah sought the Lord, God made him to prosper, you and I are to know that that prosperity was tangible and was truly shocking. It was a country that was once subjugated, impecuniary, and now elevated to incredible military and political power, and the church of God seemed to be thriving. And yet, and yet, Isaiah must go and must call for repentance. Yet, things are not well in the church. Friend, what this teaches us here is that these mercies came, but as we see in Uzziah's later acts, they drove the man to presumption. Or rather, more accurately, they were an occasion for his presumption. We see that in Israel, we see that in Judah, rather, as a whole. So wonderfully blessed by God, and all that this did as it worked in their sinful hearts was to drive them more and more away from him. What this teaches us, friends, is that without repentance, temporal mercies, all mercies, are abused. Unless we meet temporal mercies with repentance, we abuse them. I just want to meditate on that very briefly, friend, because I think this is often forgotten. We could ask the question, why did God pour his blessings as he did? And in such a significant way on these generations when things were not right. Just remember the words that the apostle preaches there in Acts 14. God, he said, suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he he left not himself without witness, in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Know what he says to these heathens. He says God had left a solemn witness to him, the living God. That He and He only is the living God and that He is the one from whom only good might be expected and sought. These temporal mercies were like solemn voices in a court urging them to look to the one who alone has right, who alone should be invoked for all good. Every temporal mercy, says the Apostle, was a standing witness to God. Then, when the apostle deals with the Jews, as the Jews look at the blessings, the bounties that the Gentiles had received, he tells them, It's the goodness of God that leadeth thee to repentance. Friend, why were all of these mercies given to Uzziah? Why were all of these good and these temporal things given? They were not given with the intention that, that Uzziah would, would become so proud as to presume as he does. They were given as so many calling cards to drive him to faithfulness. God sometimes will draw his people to faithfulness through his rod. And sometimes, as he does here, he will do so with his blessing. But in both cases, friend, the urgent cry is that of repentance. If I've received good from his hand, it should drive me away from sin if I feel the weight of sin and its curse, if I feel something of its sting, that too should drive me to God. But because, friend, the church in Uzziah's day failed to do so, because Uzziah failed to use these mercies in that way, as the text tells us in 2 Chronicles, as he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. He presumed on the mercies God had given. And so we close thirdly and finally with this preparation for judgment that we see in that text. Namely, when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. It's a striking turn of phrase, isn't it? The idea there is that his heart, his heart led him into the mouth of misery. That's the idea. And friend, what this teaches us so very clearly is that this unchecked pride proved to be nothing less than a harbinger of divine judgment. Uzziah, the longest reigning of Judah's kings, 52 years on the throne, he evidently saw all the prosperity that was under him, saw all of the pretended piety that was before him, and presumed that he was something he wasn't. And as the text says, it was his heart that led him to destruction. You know, friend, even the Christian can fall into that same kind of thing. I know I cite this relatively frequently, but Psalm 30 is a wonderful picture of that very truth. In the 30th Psalm, the psalmist speaks of the multitude of blessing that he's received from God. And it leads him to that point, and I'll read it for you just now. Where he says to God, strikingly, he says, I shall never be moved. Lord, by thy favor, thou hast made my mountain to stand strong. Thou didst hide, and then he says this, thou didst hide thy face, and I was troubled. The man was fortified, immovable in his own mind, and then he says this, as God visits him in chastening, thou didst hide thy face. And I was troubled, friend. When you and I we we don't recognize that every temporal mercy lays on us just another obligation to seek only God, to abase ourselves before Him, to be like the patriarch Jacob, confessing we're not worthy of the least of those mercies. When we don't respond to temporal blessings in that way, we will fall like Uzziah. Maybe not at the same degree. But I make no mistake, your heart will lead you to dangerous places. And so it did not only for Isaiah, but for the church in Isaiah's day. This is the one thing that the prophet insists on time and again. Over and over he reminds them that while they think so highly of themselves, their prosperity as well as their pretended piety, this pride will only lead to their ruin. Now friend, as we close, there is something in this text that that should thrill our souls. In this first verse in Isaiah, when we're told that that the prophet was sent to such a generation as that which we've just described, a generation that, that had a form of godliness but lacked its power, a generation that was prosperous but used that as an occasion for pride, when God says, to his prophet, that you will be sent to that generation. Friend, it should should thrill our souls that God is willing even to go to such sinners as them, to call them, to say even to them, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, shall be made white as wool. Friend, it's a staggering mercy that our God would be pleased to send his warnings His gracious invitations even to us who have abused so many mercies and who are so quickly to be contented with a form of godliness. Friend, here you have the long-suffering, the mercy of our God set on clear display. He calls even them. And so, friend, the question this evening is this, are are these mercies that you have, do you treat them as so many calls to renew your repentance, to forsake sin all the more, and to hold fast to God only? They should be. You know, in a generation before, calling cards were used to to say that somebody had, had called by. In some way, friend, the scriptures speak of temporal mercies in a similar sense. God sends these things that they might be a witness to him. That he is altogether good and you should seek only good from his hand. That these things should drive you away from others and only to him. The question is, do temporal mercies, do they work that way with your own soul? When God has brought you to a spacious place, a great place. Do you see your greater obligation to run to God who has given you such good things? The exhortation from this text, and this is what we will see time and again in these first five chapters of the prophecy, is that we are summoned to make use of God's calls. Whether his call comes from his rod or from his blessings, we are urged to make use of them. We are urged to progress in repentance. We are urged to cling all the more to Jesus Christ. And so, friend, as we leave this text, as we begin this prophecy, that is certainly the one theme that we need to hear time and again. And I'll close with this, friend. The prophecy of Isaiah, given its context, as we've just meditated on this evening, is it not so suited to the church in the West today? Are we not a people buttressed with prosperity? Are we not a people inundated with his mercies? And yet, friend, surely it's it's not the judgment of just a few that we are a generation that is contented with a form of godliness without its power. That's the very generation It's the very condition of the church to which the prophet was sent. And so certainly it is a timely word, a word that presents to us Christ especially accommodated to an age such as this. May we see Christ as we take up his word in this way. Amen.